Today on Maine Calling, the threat of avian flu in Maine. Already this year, state wildlife and agriculture officials have confirmed new cases of avian influenza here in both hooded mergansers and a flock of backyard chickens. The state began tracking avian flu last February and in 2022 identified it in 17 non-commercial poultry flocks. It is also blamed for the deaths of more than 300 seals in Maine. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we learned the latest about the virus. Public health officials are closely following news of human cases of avian flu in Cambodia and China. We'll talk about the risks of avian flu to wild and domestic birds in Maine and what protective actions to take. Maine Calling is next, but first, this news. Maine Calling On Demand is made possible by listeners and by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Welch and Forbes, working with clients to manage the full range of events that come with building wealth, from investments to trustee services. More welchforbes.com. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. We've all learned to take infectious viruses seriously, and the news of avian flu spreading throughout the world is disturbing. Today, we're going to find out the presence of the virus in Maine's wild and domestic birds and what experts know about the risk of the virus to humans. My guest, Dr. Carolyn Hurwitz, who is Assistant State Veterinarian for the Division of Animal and Plant Health with the Maine Department of Agriculture, Conservation and Forestry, and Tegwin Taylor, who is Wildlife Health Biologist for the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. Join the conversation. What are your questions about avian flu? You can share your comments or questions by email, talk at mainepublic.org. Post a comment on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. Thank you all both for joining us. Um, Let's talk first, and Dr. Hurwitz, I'll start with you, about just sort of describing what avian flu is, what what we refer to as avian flu. I know that there's more than one. I understand until um, recently in history, it was referred to as foul plague. Thanks, Jennifer. Yes. Um, so avian flu, uh, we all call it flu, but that's short for influenza. Um, it's a type of virus that affects birds. Um, there's a couple different types of influenza viruses, but influenza A is the one that um, is infecting birds. And within that category, there's a ton of different viruses. So they have names based on certain surface proteins of those viruses. Um, many different types, they're named with a, a number for the H component and a number for the N component. So that's what makes up the name. Um, a lot of people have probably heard of this virus being called H5N1, so that's its name. Um, Even beyond that, though, it gets a lot more specific with different um, families within this H5N1. Um, But to keep it simple, we're dealing with an influenza A virus of an H5N1 type 
And this is a highly pathogenic H5N1 virus, meaning it makes birds very sick and they die quickly. And that's in comparison to a low pathogenic avian influenza virus, which we also look for routinely in partnership with our wildlife colleagues. And and one of the big concerns um, and why as a veterinarian, you're involved in this, Dr. Hurwitz, is because so many backyard flocks in Maine are infected, have been infected in the last year, correct? That's correct. So Maine has seen a total of 17 cases so far. Um, and, that and when I you should... say cases, you don't mean individual birds, you mean many more birds than that. Right. So to specify, that's actually only 17 infected premises. So that is not the total number of birds that have been sick um, and subsequently died or needed to be euthanized because they were part of a flock where this virus was spreading. So Maine has seen 17 infected premises so far, our first infected premise being early February of last year, and our most recent infected premises being um, early February of this year. So it's been a full year that we've been um, battling this virus in the state of Maine. And you've already seen it in at least one flock this year, correct? One backyard flock. There have been three flocks so far in 2023. That's correct. Wow. Tegwin Taylor, I want to bring you into this. Um, reading about how the avian influenza is affecting wild birds around the world, um, really concerning for wildlife biologists, correct? Uh, yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, the one thing with avian influenza is wild birds are the reservoir or the source of, of all of these viruses. Um, and especially for low path, you typically don't see many of the wild birds impacted. Um, but like Carolyn mentioned, for highly, pathic, highly pathogenic influenza, um, even the wild birds are susceptible. Um, and not all wild birds, but we certainly see um, considerable you know, death and uh, illness in uh, shorebirds specifically, um, and raptors also, because they're typically scavenging or, or feeding off of those birds that have already died. So when you say, um, I, I know that already this year, a hooded merganser, at least one hooded merganser, I'm reading about bald eagles nationally. Uh, Tegwin, what are we seeing in Maine's bald eagle population? Have we seen cases of avian flu? Yes, yeah, so we did actually have two cases um, last year um, in 2022. We haven't seen anything recently in bald eagles that um, has been diagnosed. But again, similar to the poultry flocks, we don't necessarily pick up everything that is out there and circulating. Um, and so we're just relying on what we get from surveillance um, or if they're reported and end up at a wildlife re rehabilitator, um, then we occasionally get cases through, through that mechanism as well. But right now, thankfully, we're not getting any reports um, of bald eagles potentially dying from H5N1, but it is certainly a possibility. Dr. Hurwitz, how is avian influenza spread from wild birds to backyard flocks? That's the most important question. Um, so at least from a, a domestic bird perspective. So as Dr. Taylor mentioned, wild waterfowl in particular are the reservoir or source of this virus. It's well adapted to them. Um, and it actually does pretty well in their GI tract, so they can spread the virus in their manures if they're carrying it. Um, so in that way, they can act as a source of introduction to our backyard flocks when those two populations of birds share an environment. And those wild birds are often drawn into our backyard flocks by um, environments where they have the resources they need. So if you have a little 
backyard farm pond that your birds have access to, that might be where they share an environment with these infected wild birds. Another thing that draws those birds in are feed and water sources. So if you have backyard birds, it's really important to make sure that you're protecting them by protecting their environments and their resources and keeping all of things um, separate from where wild birds can access them. And I understand that many, and and I, as a reporter, I've been to these um, farms, I, that many commercial birds are kept indoors for their entire life for the specific purpose, to keep them protected from um, avian influenza. Do you recommend that for uh, people who are uh, just have their own chickens to keep them indoors or in, in an enclosure? Does that protect them from avian influenza? So in general, yes. Um, I, the point you're describing is something called biosecurity, and that's a very holistic way of protecting all types of livestock, but particularly right now we're focused on domestic birds. And in a commercial setting, they're often kept inside of an enclosure or a barn um, for the, the fact that that allows you to control their environment and what those birds are exposed to, not just avian influenza. There's all kinds of infectious diseases that can be moved between populations of um, domestic birds and wild birds. So when it comes to backyard flocks, I think it's really important to do your own risk assessments and try to understand what the risk uh, to your domestic birds could be from having contact with wild birds or rodents or pets. Um, and likewise, it's really a two-way street. So you have to consider what infectious diseases might be native to your flock that could then be passed out to wildlife. So it is important to keep your birds contained. A barn might not necessarily be appropriate or feasible for all people, but this idea of containment and controlling those populations of birds is important regardless of the setting. Uh, Tyquin, I we did a program, a Maine Calling program, just last week on seals in Maine. And I knew that the deaths of many seals last year had been attributed eventually to avian influenza I understand more than 300, what we learned last week is that more than 300 seals had died. What does this tell us about mammals being able to be infected with avian influenza, how dangerous it is for mammals? And I'm wondering if you, if it's only seals or if we've seen avian influenza in other mammals in the state. Mammals were certainly affected uh, last year, and that could potentially continue. In Maine, thankfully, um, so far we haven't seen it in any other mammals, but reported across the nation, there, there are quite a few different species uh, that has been detected in, particularly red fox seems to be one of the more susceptible species, um, likely because, again, they're feeding on those birds that have potentially died from H5N1. Um, but, yeah, we're seeing it in a lot, in a lot of different mammals um, across the nation, Thankfully, in Maine, so far, the only one we've detected it in um, are the, the seals. Okay. And do you expect to see more seal infections this year? Um, unfortunately, if things continue the, the way that they've been going over this past year, um, it wouldn't surprise me if, if we see it in seals um, or potentially uh, other mammals. Um, just like we've mentioned, the, the red fox, skunks, um, some of the other carnivores, bears, cougars, uh, bobcats. All of those have, have been detected with H5N1 um, in the United States over the past few months. Mm. Dr. Hurwitz, 
Tegwin said that the red fox that have been infected in other places, probably because they're eating infected birds, uh, which makes me think if somebody unknowingly eats an infected bird, a chicken or a duck, poultry, are, are they at risk? I mean, what is the human risk to eating um, uh, a, an egg or um, a chicken that has um, been exposed to avian flu? So it, I think probably the major difference between the way that these wild animals and humans are coming in contact with these products is that they're eating them raw as they find them um, and often scavenging animals that are, you know, they're dead and have died from this virus, whereas humans are, first of all, self-selecting for only eating poultry and poultry products from healthy birds, um, and then going ahead and making sure that you properly handle and cook those products negates any risk from potentially consuming the influenza virus. Dr. Taylor, we heard last week that two uh, people in Can Cambodia had contracted this virus and now also somebody in China. That's scary. How alarmed are you and how worried are you about a human outbreak of avian influenza and what it might do to the human population here and worldwide. Yeah, so thankfully so far with this particular virus in the United States, um, there has been very little risk to humans. Um, there was one detection in a poultry worker that was involved with um, depopulating th that flock. Um, so certainly had a, a much higher risk than the average public. Um, Influences are tricky. They, they like to change and resort and, and kind of, um, you know, pick their host. And so it's always a possibility. Um, and that's why we recommend that people are, are very careful whether they find um, dead wild birds or, you know, I'm sure Carolyn um, communicates with, with her flocks and farmers all the time. Um, we do want people to take precautions. But thankfully, currently, uh, with this particular virus, there has been little risk to humans so far. Carolyn. Thanks. Yeah, so um, the, the cases that you mentioned are, are interesting and certainly concerning and reinforce the idea that um, humans need to be careful if they are interacting with sick birds. Um, the cases in Cambodia were actually shown to be a, a slightly different and older lineage of virus. So there was some difference um, in those viruses that had infected those people. But to to Tegwin's point about the fact that this virus is a real and potential threat um, on the domestic bird side, when we do respond to infected premises here in Maine, um, we do work very closely with Maine CDC and share information about the responders and connect them to the owner of the infected flock so that they can report any concerning symptoms within a monitoring window to our public health colleagues here in Maine. So there's been active monitoring for the potential for this to happen here in Maine. And so far that has not been the case. And I understand that there is a vaccine being developed just in case. On the human side? Yes. Yeah, so um, that pandemic preparedness is an ongoing effort and um, the developments of an effective vaccine for humans is certainly part of that. All right. Well, we are talking about avian influenza on Maine Calling. What are your questions? The phone number 
1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. You can email talk at mainpublic.org or post a comment on social media. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Our topic today, avian influenza or bird flu, how it's affecting our birds in Maine and how to prevent its spread. Joining me, Dr. Tegwin Taylor, veterinarian and wildlife biologist with the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, and Dr. Carolyn Hurwitz, an assistant state veterinarian with the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry. What are your questions about avian influenza? Send us an email, talk at mainpublic.org. Comment on social media or give us a call at one 800 399 I'm going to go to a question here that came in by email. Um, this is from Sally Tegwin. I think this is for you. A friend saw many dead eiders at Pine Point Beach in Scarborough yesterday. Could this be avian flu or could it have been the storm on Saturday? I think uh, both are potential possibilities. Um, we certainly detected uh, avian influenza along the coastline um, in, in Maine, pretty much every coastal county except for uh, one so far. Um, and yes, especially if it's a, it's a large group of birds, uh, that could potentially um, be an indication that there's an infectious component going on. Um, if they would like to report that to the regional biologist, it would help us to, to um, help sort of track where, where there's activity with this. Um, and if they're from some fresh specimens, we could potentially get them uh, tested. However, uh, right now we're trying to focus our surveillance and testing efforts in those parts of Maine um, where it has not been detected so that we continue to follow uh, how it tracks and, and changes. Um, but yeah, it very well could be associated with H5N1 um, or the weather is, is another option like your. Um, Carolyn. Thanks. I just wanted to add to that, um, that this communication between members in the public and our wildlife agency and agricultural agencies and extension all that's really helpful for all of us to maintain a general awareness of what we're seeing with this virus in the state. And it's helpful to us on the agricultural side to know if our wildlife agencies are investigating a die-off of birds in a particular area, as that might increase our suspicion for avian influenza if we receive a sick bird call to us um, reporting symptoms of avian influenza. So all of this communication is very helpful. We're not quite into spring migration season, but when that hits, come March, April, May, how much does that impact this concern about the spread of avian influenza in Maine? Yeah, so you make a good point. Um, typically with avian influenza, there is an uptick uh, during the migratory seasons. Um, and that's been the unusual thing with this specific one is, uh, like it, the same virus was here in 2014 and made a you know a little dent. Um, didn't really affect the wild birds that much, but it had a significant impact on the poultry industry. Um, and then this time when it came around, it just stayed um, and it hasn't left. Typically, um, when things get hot and the sun's out, uh, the virus is very susceptible to that, and and uh, it would normally go away. But but this time, um, we haven't seen that sort of behavior from the virus. Um, so it likes cold environments, it likes wet environments, um, and I would expect that it'll, it'll be here um, this spring for at least a while. Um, hopefully the summer will, will change that, but um, so far we haven't received any indications that it's going away 
at this point. Is this like other viruses that we're able to look at what's happening in other parts of the world before here in the northern hemisphere and have a sense of how it's going to be affecting our bird population and, and other wild animals because, you know, it's doing this in Ecuador right now, uh, Dr. Taylor? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, this virus uh, was circulating in Europe in 2020 and 2021. Um, and then it arrived in eastern Canada and then down into the United States. Um, and we're seeing similar um, results or, or um, you know, impacts on, on bird populations uh, that they were seeing. So, yes, it, for the most part, it does behave similarly. Uh, like Carolyn noted, um, with the Cambodia human cases, it, even though it's called an H5N1, there are a lot of different subtypes of H5N1. <laughs> and so um, depending on what is their currently, uh, that can change substantially the impact that it has on animals or people. Um, but at, at this point, all the surveillance that's occurring currently is indicating that it's the same virus um, throughout the United States that it's behaving similarly um, for animals and birds. All right. We'll go to Marie, who's calling from Augusta. Hi, Marie. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I just wanted to mention that last summer, I got quite sick and went to urgent care thinking i must have COVID. I had tested myself and I was negative and I was tested there and they said I had influenza A, bird flu. Mm. Um, tell me about that experience. How how sick were you? Uh, sick enough to go to urgent care. Um, you know, I live alone and I have had in the past sepsis and double pneumonia, so I was pretty alarmed. Um, they did a throat swab, and I mean, I distinctly remember thinking, what? You know, and that's what I was told. Uh, Carolyn, is this, um, is this, if Marie's told she has influenza A, is this the same virus that we're seeing in the birds? No, and that's a really good question and a really good point of clarification to make. Um, so I'm sorry, Marie, that you wasted any time of your summer feeling sick. Um, and that's good that you were able to get care and be tested. Um, influenza A describes the broadest category of influenza viruses. And within that, there's many different types, um, some of which are human viruses, there's dog influenzas, horse influenzas, swine influenzas, and all of these are classified as influenza A viruses. Um, so Marie was most likely infected with a human influenza A virus. Um, and again, our human health colleagues at Maine CDC have protocols for identifying when a human influenza A case could potentially be one that doesn't usually infect humans. And so they communicate with um, human healthcare providers the same way our Department of Agriculture communicates with private practice veterinarians. So there is a mechanism in place to identify where an unusual virus um, would be infecting a person. So if that had been the case with this virus that would have been further investigated in a human influenza A, um, of the human influenza type is not unusual. Marie, thank you so much for calling and sharing your experience. Uh, we'll move up to Woolwich and Chuck. Hi, Chuck, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, thank you. Um, I have a question concerning waterfowl hunting. 
where hunters might be in contact with wild birds and also their uh, dogs who may be retrieving birds that are infected with avian uh, influenza. Yeah, that's a great question. Dr. Taylor. Yes, um, so it's certainly a concern that we want hunters to be aware of. Um, thankfully, historically, there's been uh, very little exposure um, to hunting dogs to uh, these avian influenza viruses. There is a study uh, that modeled risk to dogs um, out of Alaska with another avian influenza, um, and it really showed very, very little risk. However, in the real world, um, we, would, we would appreciate if, if bird hunters um, are a little more careful and, you know, try to um, prevent their dogs from, you know, if they find a dead bird, you know, trying to prevent them from obviously consuming that, but because they're bird dogs and uh, they typically point or they, they go retrieve, um, washing your hands in between hunting and, um, and, and going out again is a, a good practice. And for your dog, um, you know, watch for symptoms should something happen. But thankfully so far, um, dogs do not seem to be at high risk. But again, because we've had those mammal cases, uh, we certainly want to keep our eye on them. Um, but there are a couple of papers out there that I can forward to, to Jennifer um, if they want to share that resource for you. Um, and let me ask you this, Tegwin. You said, Chuck, it's a good idea to wash your hands in between um, uh, trips. But, you know, when you're out in the field, if you've handled a wild bird, would you recommend hunters carrying um, hand sanitizer with them? Does that help at all or is not really? Yeah, no, it's, it can certainly help if you don't have access to running water and soap, which you likely don't when you're out in the field. Um, yeah, it, having hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol uh, is a good idea. And, um, you know, it, again, it, it's, it really contaminates the water. It spreads in the water very, very easily, um, especially where there's large congregations of birds. Um, and so minimizing, you know, that type of contact would be ideal. But, yeah, if you have hand sanitizer, I'm all for that. <laughs> um, highly recommend it. And Carolyn, what is your stepped up advice for all of the people in Maine who have a backyard flock as far as um, being safe? What, what kind of precautions would you recommend that people take that maybe they don't every day or haven't up till now? Mm -hmm. um, for anybody that is tending a backyard flock, whether they're appearing sick or healthy, it's certainly good practice to make sure that you're washing your hands um, after you interact with those birds. And it's also a good idea to keep separate equipment. So use boots or cleaning supplies that are just for that purpose. That's just good sanitation practice regardless. If you do have a sick bird that you're interacting with, it's best not to bring that bird inside the house. You know, it'd be okay if you're trying to bring them into a more temperature controlled environment to bring them into a garage or a shed, that kind of area. But you really shouldn't be bringing birds into your house, certainly not into your kitchen or bathtub, because um, you really increase the chances of being exposed to um, materials coming from that animal that could be potentially carrying something that could be harmful to you. So that basic sanitation is important, even when they're healthy and when they're not healthy, um, don't bring them inside. Make sure if you've got a pair of disposable gloves, it'd be good to use that. Um, cleaning anything that was associated with those sick birds. Um, not a bad idea to cover your respiratory tract as well. And just to prevent any kind of exposure and, and disposable items are the best. All right. When you say cover your respiratory tract, do you mean wear a mask? 
Yeah, if you have something like that, I mean, we all have access now to the N95 mask or even just a surgical mask, um, just taking that extra step to make sure that you're not breathing in um, whatever could be impacting that bird, whether it's infectious to people or not, best to take that precaution. An email here from Gina. I saw a dead wild turkey on my farm this morning. There was no sign of an attack. It was lying in untrampled snow. It is only accessible by snowmobile. Should it be reported? Tegwin. Um, yeah, I mean, we are typically concerned about groups of birds that die. Um, certainly individual birds and other wildlife die all the time for various different reasons. Um, and that is unusual that you wouldn't see a, a mark on it, but that could be infectious. Um, it could be a bunch of different things going on. Uh, but we typically want to hear about, you know, five or more birds in one area. Um, is very helpful for us to, to help see if something unusual is going on. Um, turkeys are susceptible to H5N1, um, but it could be a lot of things also. But yes, if they um, find groups of birds that are dead, we, we ask that you report it to your regional biologist. Um, we are also currently internally working on a reporting tool that we hope we can launch with the public um, eventually, and, but we're still working on it internally. Um, but that should help ease things. Um, but yes, if you could call your regional biologist when you see groups of birds dying, that, that's very helpful. You've mentioned that a couple of times. How would somebody contact their regional biologist? How do you find that person? Yeah, so um, depending on where you live, you can uh, Google MDIFW directory, um, and it'll show you all of our various regions. Um, and then there is a list of our fisheries biologists and our wildlife biologists. Um, you can also call our, uh, our uh, main agencies, our uh, main line, and they can connect you through that route also, through MDIFW. And Tegwin, I want to ask you sort of a bigger question now. We, we do a lot of programs on, on birding here on Maine Calling, and, and our audience is clearly very interested in um, not just bird watching, but the health of the bird population. We know that we've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of wild migratory birds in North America. How much of an impact is avian flu having on those overall numbers? We've heard about um, habitat loss. We've heard about pesticides. How much of a factor is this now, avian flu, and how much of a threat is it? Um, currently, it's not a direct threat at the moment, um, at least in Maine for some species. However, um, there have been huge die-offs of, of certain birds, um, you know, along the coastline. Uh, so it's certainly a concern that we want to keep our eye on. The other issue, you know, with these raptor species that are uh, scavenging or feeding on birds that have died, um, Florida had a situation where black vultures were, were feeding on um, H5N1 infected birds, and then they were feeding on each other. Um, and so it can certainly become an issue. Um, and so we want to monitor that closely. But thankfully, at this point, um, we are not seeing population level impacts um, in Maine, at least. All right. Well, we're talking about avian influenza. We're talking about its impact on backyard flocks, wild birds, and other creatures. If you have a question, give us a call. 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you are listening to Maine Calling. Today, we're talking about avian influenza. We're learning how it is affecting Maine's wild and domestic birds and what can be done to protect them. With me, two state experts, Dr. Carolyn Hurwitz, who is Assistant State Veterinarian, and Dr. Tegwin Taylor, Wildlife Health Biologist and Veterinarian. Join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org, tweet at maincalling, or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. Tegwin, what can people do if they're concerned about the birds, whether it's backyard flocks or about the wild bird population? Is there anything we as citizen scientists, as people who care, can do to help the situation? Yeah, certainly. Um, first and foremost, like with all wildlife, uh, you know, we'd recommend that you keep your distance. <laughs> um, um, whether you see groups of ill birds or groups of dying birds, um, you know, it's best to, to give you some space. If they are on your property and you either have poultry um, or, you know, ducks or um, other other birds, like Carolyn mentioned with the flocks, it's really helpful um, to be able to, to provide a barrier between your birds and the wild birds so that they can't get exposed. Um, and again, if, if you see, you know, sick birds, um, or injured birds, we have several wildlife rehabilitators within the state that can help, uh, determine what the appropriate response is. Um, and again, if you see larger groups, like over five, um, like with an individual bird, a wildlife rehabilitator is probably your best bet. But if you see groups of birds, um, ill or dying, then you'll want to contact, uh, your regional biologist or us at, at the state level in Augusta. Um, and we can help you with that. We'll go to Steve, who's calling from Portland. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, thanks very much. Um, I, I, I was wondering, I've got a, a backyard flock of about 30 birds, and I've had two die in the last couple of weeks. One of them was an, an older one, but, but the other one um, I couldn't figure out exactly why. So what would be the best way to, to get them tested, or should I have them tested? Carolyn. That's a good question, Steve. And um, I'll start off with hopefully um, a little bit of reassurance um, and echo a concept that Dr. Taylor had mentioned. Um, Typically with this virus, we see illness and mortality in groups of birds rather than um, a single bird and moving pretty slowly through a flock. So what you're seeing in your birds I'd need more information, but it sounds unlikely that your flock is affected with this particular virus. But it's certainly a good idea to make sure that you're keeping a close eye on the health of your flock and asking the questions that you are, which is why is this happening? And there's a couple of different outlets to get the answer to that question. If you have a flock veterinarian, that's certainly a really good place to start. A lot of large animal vets are traveling veterinarians, so they can come to the place where these birds live and observe their environment, which often has a pretty important clue as to what's going on there. If that's not available to you, there are a lot of small animal veterinarians that would be willing to see a bird if you call ahead um, and you could potentially bring a bird into the clinic. What they'll likely do before authorizing you to move that bird into the clinic is ask some questions about what's going on in the flock. And if it sounds like um, you're not going to accidentally bring a HPAI infected bird into their clinic, they would invite you to make a sick appointment and, and have that bird seen. There's some other options too. If you have a bird that has already passed away, um, you could work with a veterinary diagnostic lab in the region to have a post-mortem exam done. 
And there's one currently right now at the University of New Hampshire, their veterinary diagnostic lab is available for this service. And shortly the University of Maine veterinary diagnostic lab should be back up and running to offer this service to Maine poultry owners as well. So those are all really good outlets for getting a bit more information about what's going on with sick or recently dead birds. All right, Steve, good luck to you. And, and thanks for calling in. Um, Dr. Taylor, I wanted to ask you one more thing about protecting your wild birds. How important is it to clean your bird feeders? Can this avian influenza be spread through someone's backyard feeder? Um, so far, we haven't seen a lot of bird species that would use a typical bird feeder um, affected by this virus. However, it's always a good idea to disinfect your bird feeders on a regular basis, at least once a season. Um, it's also important to help clean up under the bird feeder to get that extra debris so that it's not attracting wild birds to your yard that could potentially expose, um, you know, if you have a flock um, or, you know, a pond or something like that. Um, but thankfully for most pastoring species, um, you know, the, the perching birds, this hasn't been an issue. Um, there are a couple of studies where they've um, infected them in the lab <laughs> and, and that has, um, you know, given them the infection. But thankfully so far in the real world, um, they are not that susceptible. Here's an email from Ginger. Uh, Carolyn, I think this is from you. Are pet birds at risk of avian virus through an open window or via human hands or clothes? That's a good question. And, um, you know, certainly the point that Ginger brings up about human hands or clothes and then the pre private, or, excuse me, the previous question about the bird feeder um, this is all getting to the idea of something called a fomite, which is an inanimate object that can become contaminated and act as a vehicle for moving this virus. So the concept of the fomite really applies to all kinds of birds. It's unlikely that this virus would blow in the window. I'm assuming when Ginger's talking about a pet bird, she means, a, you know, a cage type of indoor bird. Um, it's unlikely that the virus would blow in the window and affect that bird, but certainly the idea of a fomite, um, that, that is a reality. And so the precautions we talked about when we discussed biosecurity would be important, making sure that you're cleaning and disinfecting any materials that would be coming from an outside infected area to an inside area. Um, and I think it sounds like Ginger's bird being inside is already fairly separated from those sources of risk. An email from Dawn, and I, I think you may have touched on this already, Tegwin, but I'll send it to you again. Have there been any turkeys found in Maine with avian flu? So we have both the wild turkey population, of course, poultry. So maybe um, I'll have both of you answer. Uh, Dr. Taylor. Yes. Um, thank you. I'm just looking at our birds detections. I know that we've had one and uh, we've had them in a few Canada geese. Um, I don't believe that we've had a wild turkey as of yet, um, but I can look through our list and confirm that here in a minute. All right. And, and Carolyn Hurwitz, have we seen um, any backyard flocks of turkeys infected? Absolutely. So the flocks, the premises that have been infected here in Maine have all been backyard flocks, and many of those are mixed flocks, um, waterfowl, turkeys, guinea fowl, um, and this virus has affected all of those birds uniformly here in Maine and certainly nationally. There's been many commercial turkey flocks that have become infected with this virus. Uh, Carolyn, I've read that nationally so far, 
I've heard two different statistics, more than 55 million and more than 59 million um, domestic birds have had to be destroyed because of, um, um, of avian flu. And I believe that's just in 2022. Is there a number here in Maine? Do we know how many birds have already had to be destroyed? That is a good question. We do know, I didn't add it all up, but actually if you, I'll direct our listeners to the, our um, avian influenza website. There's a lot of good information there, including the situation reports that are published every time we do have to respond to an infected premises. The purpose of those situation reports is to let the general public know that there's been another case, um, the county where that case was diagnosed, what type of birds were affected. So um, if you look at that chart, there is a flock tally for each infected premises. So it is possible to add it up. I just didn't bring that figure today. Oh, and let me ask you this. Where are there places in Maine where we've seen more of it than others? Are there hot spots, if you will? Sure. So because this virus is primarily moved around by infected wild waterfowl, we have so far seen this virus in areas where we have high densities of that um, population. So Maine's um, hotspot, if you will, for avian influenza and domestic birds has so far been along the coast, um, a bit more northern than southern at this point. Um, but we did more recently have an inland case that was um, one of the first cases that had been kind of removed from that coastal community. All right. And Dr. Taylor, you found out about wild turkeys, right? Yes, um, we have not had one detected yet in Maine. Um, and similar to Carolyn, most of our cases are along the coastline um, because that's primarily where the exposure is to, to um, large groups of birds. Okay, along the coastline, but you know, we talk about waterfowl, um, anybody who's watch the bald eagles over the Kennebec River knows that there are a lot of ducks and a lot of those ducks are, um, are prey for bald eagles and other raptors. Uh, yes, certainly. And, and actually our most recent detections in the hooded bergansers um, were from Kennebec County. Um, and so, you know, not to say that they couldn't be more inland and that's why we want to continue to monitor this um, and see where else we find this virus in our birds. Carolyn, as you well know, Maine has um, a pretty big commercial poultry industry. And I'm wondering how much of a risk and how worried are commercial operators of avian influenza? We did mention earlier in the program that most of these commercial flocks are kept indoors. Does that completely protect them, kind of protect them? Um, or, or are they quite concerned that the industry here in Maine could be affected by this? So commercial operators are certainly concerned um, about this virus. They are absolutely vulnerable because they do have a large population of birds that they are protecting. Um, and that barn structure is one piece of that biosecurity puzzle. So that is one way that they're offering protection to those birds. But in addition, um, most commercial operators have very rigorous biosecurity protocols on site um, that their employees are required to follow, visitors to that location are required to follow, that includes service providers. And so they do protect those birds from this virus by making sure that people that are coming on sites um, are hopefully not posing a risk to that population. So they mitigate that risk through things like um, making sure they've got clean footwear, they can't have had exposure to other populations of birds. 
Um, so yes, they are concerned and yes, they are taking um, additional biosecurity steps to make sure that they avoid introducing this virus to those flocks. Tegan, I'm going to ask you about some things that people like to do and ask you how dangerous they are. Uh, people like to feed ducks in parks that have ponds. Is this something that might put you or the ducks at risk of avian influenza? Um, as, as far as avian influenza is concerned, no, it does not seem to be a significant risk. Um, I suspect that some of our bird specialists here may ask that people don't do that regardless. Um, but no, it's, it's not a direct contact with the bird uh, ex exposure-wise. Like typically it's, it's um, you know, contact with the water that's contaminated. Um, not to say that we would recommend handling the sick bird or getting close to that sick bird um, because it, you know, it, it spreads through the feces um, and it can certainly be on the bird as well. But typically activities like that, again, with this specific virus, um, certainly low risk. Um, but there are a variety of other reasons that you may not want to do that. Um, but no, currently a uh, very low risk with that activity. Well, how about tide pooling? Um, I, I spent a lot of time, I've spent a lot of time with my kids over the years, um, at low tide and tide pools. Uh, is that a risky activity now that we have avian influenza? Um, I would say also because of the movement of the water, um, that that would be a low risk activity. And again, um, you know, you want to wash your hands and you want to try not to swallow a bunch of that water. Um, again, for a variety of reasons, not just for avian influenza. Um, but I would assume that that would be a low risk activity um, as well. And would you say the same about fishing? Uh, yes, because as far as I know, <laughs> um, there, there hasn't been an exposure associated uh, with, with fishing. Um, but again, washing your hands, disinfecting your equipment, um, you know, especially your boots, should you be wading through water where uh, there's a lot of birds, that is always a good idea. And Carolyn Hurwitz, let me ask you a little bit about, do we know, there's so much, so much discussion right now about where did um, the COVID pandemic come from? Where did it come from? What do we know about where avian influenza came from? Or is that unanswerable because it's been with us for so long? I guess it depends how far back you want to go, but <laughs> with, with influenza viruses in general, at least influenza A, my understanding is that all these really did originate in wild waterfowl. And at some point in history, there's a, a species jump and then an adaptation. And then that's how you get a new species adapted type of influenza A virus. Um, this particular virus that we're dealing with now, as Tegwood mentioned, um, we'd been following this and um, its circulation in 2020, 2021 in Europe. Um, so we, we were able to um, trace the introduction of this virus into the Atlantic Flyway and then subsequent spread throughout the U.S. Okay. Tegwin, is there anything that can be done? We've talked about what you can do to protect your backyard flock. Is there anything that can be done to protect wild birds? Oh, man. Um, I think that's the trickiest part of, of all of this um, because wild birds, you know, I mean, they pretty much want to go where they want to go. Um, we are taking precautions for some of our protected species and some of those um, that we're most concerned with. Um, but you know, again, I think observations are, are really what helps us out the most learning where there's potentially groups of birds that are dying, um, where those 
birds are located. Um, as far as I know, you know, it's very hard to do a vaccine campaign for wildlife. Um, and so I, I suspect that that is not in the works um, unless it's for protected species that are, you know, in, in zoos um, or other confined habitat. Um, but really observing um, and reporting those observations would be very helpful, I think, to us in the wildlife world. Carolyn. I think another important thing that um, owners of domestic bird flocks can do is make sure that they are observing their birds. And if they do see signs of illness, to try to jump on that as quickly as possible. Um, and if you do suspect that your birds are sick with highly pathogenic avian influenza, it's important to either reach out to your veterinarian as soon as possible, or um, there's a sick bird hotline number that I can share with our callers. It's Please do. Eight, it's 866-536-7593. And that's a number that you can call to discuss what you're seeing in your birds and have that case evaluated. Um, and then that call will be routed to us here at the Maine Department of Agriculture to follow up with you. Um, and if you do have sick birds and they are dying from this virus, it's important to make sure that you get that diagnosed and contained as quickly as possible because dead birds, um, if left on the landscape, can potentially be a source of infection back to wild birds. So to protect wildlife, you should make sure to contain whatever illness might be impacting your domestic birds. And and are all birds that are infected, is, is it a death sentence or is it like with humans and other influences that birds will survive this? So some types of waterfowl um, can actually do okay with this virus. Um, however, as Dr. Taylor mentioned, what we're seeing with this current virus, which is different than the 2014-2015 virus, um, is that it is actually making waterfowl sick too. All other types of birds, gallinaceous poultry, which is chickens, turkeys, birds like that, um, this virus is really pretty fatal to them. So it's um, when it gets into a domestic bird flock, specifically gallinaceous birds, um, it makes them very sick and they die pretty quickly. So it's bad news. It's very bad news. And that's one of the reasons why we're really trying to get rid of it. All right. Well, I'm going to leave by asking you one question, Tegwin, which is, as we wrap up this conversation today, how worried are you? How alarmed are you by what you're seeing? Um, <laughs> I, I hope we're through the worst of it. I, I think last year was a shock to most of the people in the wildlife world um, about how, you know, how strong this virus hit the wild bird population. Um, we're definitely much better prepared this year than we were last year. Um, and, you know, these viruses typically burn out eventually. And so um, hopefully that happens sooner than later. Um, but yeah, I mean, we want to keep our eye on it for sure. Um, it, but hopefully it, it continues to have, um, you know, a low impact on populations overall. Um, but uh, yeah, it's certainly something that we want to keep watching. Well, thank you both for joining us. Tegwin Taylor, wildlife health biologist for the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, and Carolyn Hurwitz, assistant state veterinarian for the Maine Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry. Today's sound engineer, KG Akimaladun. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. Tomorrow on the program, StoryCorps focuses on military voices recording the stories of Maine veterans. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Public Radio.